0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States, episode 2.3, Carolina. Last week, we spent our time going back and covering the province of Maryland. In the case of Maryland, I admittedly should have covered it last season because, yeah, most of those events would have fit better then. In the case of Carolina, however, this episode is exactly where it belongs. My plan with Carolina is to have a short series of two episodes to cover its creation in early years. So this is not going to be anything like our epic dive through New England or even our treatment of Virginia in Jamestown. So without further delay, let's dive in and look at the founding of Carolina. If you look at a map, you'll see that Jamestown is located in Virginia. If you look to the south of Virginia, you're going to have to go all the way down to Florida before you reach the next European colony, specifically Spanish Florida. Not surprisingly, the English had noticed this large amount of uninhabited land for the taking. Of course, it wasn't really uninhabited, but that really doesn't pose much of a hindrance for the English. We will come back to that issue here in a few moments. The initial claim on Carolina came back in 1629. Made by a Sir Robert Heath, Carolina was intended to be a haven for the French Huguenots. Now, and here comes the real shocker, Charles I was just not feeling this. Well, he did go ahead and give the grant to Heath, it was very clearly laid out that it was meant for members of the Church of England. For Heath, this made the entire endeavor all but pointless. Heath would never end up actually starting a colony or acting on the grant. After the death of Charles I, there was an attempt by the Heath family to make their claim to the land, but Charles II wasn't having any of this either and declared the claim invalid. The next major attempt at colonization would come in the early 1660s. The biggest hindrance to English expansion to the south had been fear of Spanish reprisal. If you recall from episode 1.6, by the middle part of the 16th century, Spain had become the dominant power in the Americas. Despite their growing influence, however, they kept a relatively small foothold in what would become the United States. While they did continue to hold Florida, they never really had a sustained expansion to the north. With that said, however, the threat of Spanish aggression had long been a concern of the English, which explains why there is such a large buffer zone to the south of Virginia. However, following the Peace of Westphalia, the Spanish Empire entered into a long and gradual period of decline. Their decline as a colonial power had begun in 1655 when the English captured Jamaica. With Spanish power now on the wane, the English felt comfortable expanding their holdings to the south of Virginia. The English had become increasingly interested in the prospects that the American colonies had in regards to their sheer amount of land. As we saw up in Maryland, English landholders realized that they could substantially increase the size of their holdings in North America. Beyond that, the English monarch had maintained a hands-off approach to this point. For somebody looking to start a colony, the idea of having a literal fiefdom was an interesting prospect. An example of this type of settlement surviving was easy enough to find as well. All one had to do is look at our friend Lord Baltimore up in Maryland. Here, you had an English landlord who was interested in expanding his holdings. The province of Maryland offered this opportunity to do just that, And, as discussed just a moment ago, Baltimore had near-total control over his colony. With Spanish influence on the decline, it meant that there was less of a danger of aggression from the Spanish should the English settle further south than Virginia. A Spanish decline came at a super convenient time for the English as well. The English had discovered the cash crop that was sugar. The problem with sugar is that, much like tobacco, it is a labor-intensive and land-intensive crop. Now, there are various ways to deal with the incoming labor shortage. This includes having more colonists come over, indentured servants, and, yes, slaves. The land, on the other hand, was a bigger concern. The islands of the West Indies were basically exhausted. There was a major shortage of available land where you could grow sugar, and the soil itself was becoming increasingly drained of nutrients. This shortage of land meant that the cost to produce sugar was rapidly increasing. The effect of this is that sugar production fell completely into the hands of wealthy landlords and squeezed poor planters right out of the game. This increasingly angry mass was desperate for opportunities that were simply becoming less and less available throughout the islands of the Caribbean. Enter Sir John Colton. Colton was born in 1608 as the second son of Peter Colton. Growing up in Dover, Colton was of some means, but would truly see himself ascend to prominence during the English Civil War. Colton spent the war fighting alongside the King and the Royalists, where he was marked with distinction. Earning a commission, Colton would end up commanding his own regiment. However, as we know, the Royalists did not win the English Civil Wars. Colton would end up having his land seized by parliamentary forces, and Colton himself was forced to flee England for the relative safety of the English colony in Barbados. Colton would then spend the next decade as a sugar planter on that island. Seeing the land shortage, Colton recognized that the West Indies were becoming oversaturated to the point where there was little opportunity for anybody other than the wealthiest landlords. Colton had good personal connections from his time in the war and was close personal friends with William Berkeley, the governor in Virginia. Colton had become tied to the Berkeley family during the Civil War as it was William Berkeley's brother, John Berkeley, who would grant the commission to Colton during that war. John Berkeley is going to come up again here shortly, as he is going to become one of the founders of the province of New Jersey. The situation in England had also changed by this time. Oliver Cromwell had died in 1658. Upon his death, his son, Richard Cromwell, became the Lord Protector of England. The problem, however, is that Richard was definitely not his father. Without going into details, as they are not really important for our story, Richard would end up resigning as Lord Protector, and England turned to the son of Charles I, who had been hanging out in exile in the Spanish Netherlands. Charles II was brought back to England and was officially recognized as king on May 29, 1660. I say recognized as king because, to his credit, Charles II had been telling everybody for the past decade that he was, in fact, the king. The difference is, it took until May of 1660 before anybody really decided that it was time to listen to him. For Colton, this presented him with new opportunities. Charles II did in fact recall those who had remained loyal not only to his father, but to house steward in general. Colton, marking these checkboxes, found himself in a perfect position. Joining together with the Berkeley brothers, as well as the Barbados plantation owner, Anthony Cooper, they set out with a plan to colonize the Carolinas. The Carolinas were a perfect place for such an ambitious project. Unlike on the islands of the West Indies, there was absolutely no shortage of land in North America. In fact, to men like Colton, Carolina must have seemed like nearly infinite amounts of land. Picking up a handful of other major investors along the way, including Edward Hyde, George Monck, Sir George Carteret, and William Craven, the Earl of Craven. The men mentioned above were not just wealthy, but carried with them large amounts of influence. Monck had been a pivotal player in making the restoration happen. Hyde was the king's chief minister. Not only did these men have money for the project, but they had the power and influence to make it a reality. On March 24, 1663, their request was granted. Charles II issued a grant to the eight men that gave them control of everything south of the 36th parallel, down to the St. Mathis River near the border of Florida. Now, oddly enough, I can't actually find anything to tell me where the St. Mathis River actually was, as it appears to have been renamed. So, my awesome listeners, I would love an answer to this if anybody knows. Looking at a map, I suspect that the St. Mathis River is now St. Mary's on the Florida-Georgia state line. However, beyond me making what I think is an educated guess, I've got zero to back me up on this. So, if you know the answer and want to help me out, please do. Either way. Colton and his company had just been given a very significant grant of land and were now ready to jump into the colonization game. Understanding the difficulty of getting people to pack up from England and travel across the Atlantic, the plan was to get settlers into the Carolina in a different way. Instead of looking across the Atlantic for colonists, the focus was instead placed on people much closer to that location. This gave several advantages over trying to get people in England to uproot. First, as we saw in Jamestown, the trip was extremely rough on one's health. Not only was the journey across the Atlantic itself fraught with danger, but things did not get much better once you arrived in colonial America. The difference in climate led to long periods of acclimation and typically a high mortality rate. Having to learn the land and figure out how to survive took time and came at great expense to the colony. We spent a ton of time on this last season when we looked at the early struggles in Jamestown as well as Plymouth. The Carolina investors had no interest in repeating these mistakes. Instead, they wanted something that would be immediately able to get on its own two feet and quickly become profitable. Recruiting people already in the new world meant that they would be able to avoid the worst of the process of acclimation. Secondly, Colton was keenly aware of the land shortage in the West Indies. He knew that there was already a large population in place that was anxious for opportunity to make a profit. With the land shortages, it was practically impossible for them to carve out a place in the West Indies. However, the prospect of coming to Carolina afforded them the chance to establish their own plantations. Colton, having spent a decade in exile in Barbados, focused his efforts there. The Grant named our eight proprietors as being the absolute proprietors of the colony. So much as it was in Maryland, our eight proprietors are going to essentially be running their own little kingdom. So let's spend some time looking at the Charter itself and figuring out what we can learn from it. In the beginning of the Charter, it is interesting to take notice of the position of England in regards to the Native Americans. The first paragraph grants the land in order to enlarge the empire and dominions of England and claim those parts of America that are not yet cultivated or planted and only inhabited by some barbarous people who have no knowledge of the Almighty God. Contrast that to what we discussed way back in episode 1.7 as we looked at the English attempts to justify the fact that the land was in fact not open. Clearly here in 1663, that has moved from being something of a concern to little more than an afterthought. Of course, a lot had happened over the past half century. One must question just how much of an effect the 1622 massacre in Jamestown had on the long-term relationship between the Indians and the English. Certainly, as we see from this charter, the Indians were essentially being written off as all but irrelevant. Not surprisingly, the colony was set up with the official sanctioned religion being the Church of England. The proprietors of the colony would have had the ability to build and found churches, however, all of them were required to be both Christian and essentially falling within the bounds and limits of the ecclesiastical laws of England. There is nothing surprising about this considering that Charles II was back into power at this point. Of the eight proprietors, they had nearly unlimited power within the colony. They had the right to sell and lease land, pass law and issues, taxes. So long as the laws being passed were not in violation of the laws of England, they pretty much could do what they wanted. Furthermore, they had the ability to raise forces, fight wars when needed, and, if needed, declare martial law in order to put down insurrections. As was pretty common, there was a standard provision that things needed to be done upon the consent of the freemen of the colony. However, it should also be noted that, should emergency situations arise, there was a bypass mechanism in place for the proprietors. The eight proprietors also had the ability to pass their shares of the colony down to their heirs. This is an important distinction moving forward, as it means that the power of the colony was forever tied up in these men. We will see, down the road ways, that when Carolina transitions to a crown colony, England is going to end up buying out seven of the eight proprietors, and essentially repurchasing the colony from the heirs of the original eight. The charter granted the ability to license and trade in any port whatsoever. The free nature of this provision and trade is going to be hugely influential in the growth of the colony. Likewise, this is one of those genies that England is never going to be able to put back into the bottle. The American colonies are always going to recoil anytime there is an attempt to limit their trade. Free trade through the colonies is a key characteristic and is something that is ultimately going to help define the prosperity of the colonies. The proprietors of the colony had the right to grant titles to those living within the colony. This may seem like a minor thing, however, it really goes more to show the power of the proprietors. In effect, they were extraordinarily powerful landlords, with the key difference being that they had an ocean in between them and England. These decisions such as granting titles, selling land, and the ability to raise armies and taxes, are born out of the pragmatic need for leadership. When actually reading the charter, it becomes clear that the king, at least to some degree, recognized the difficulty that he was going to have personally ruling over the colony. For the monarch, the best and really only option was to make sure that those in power in the colonies were loyal to the monarch. Beyond that, the rule of the king over the colony was actually somewhat tenuous. Sure, nobody was talking about independence, however, but for the loyalty of his governors and landlords, the king held little actual power in the colonies. This is going to be a big deal in time. The relative freedom from the home islands is something that the colonies will come to hold as a central part of their existence. When England attempts to turn the clock back on that and take more of an active hand in controlling the colonies... Resistance will become the order of the day. The Charter of Carolina granted wide-ranging powers to the eight proprietors. It gave them the power to work essentially as kings in their dominion. As long as they kept everything within the bounds of the laws of England, they could basically do what they pleased. Now, we're going to come back to this next week and spend much more time focusing on the fundamental constitution of the province of Carolina. This is going to give us a chance to see how the government actually ends up being set up. To finish up for this week, I want to take just a little bit of time to discuss those early years in Carolina. Despite the attempts to recruit settlers from within the colony, what we still end up seeing is a series of starts and stops during the first several years of the colony's existence. It won't be until 1669, six years after the original grant, that we see an actual colony really take root within the province of Carolina. Following the grant to our proprietors, things got off to a rather slow start in the colony. For the first several years, all the activity is spent on scouting and exploration missions. Now, these missions did have their place and ultimately would prove to be beneficial for the colony. With Virginia and New England, advanced scouting is minimal at best. John Smith had sailed up to the general vicinity of the New England coastline around Cape Cod, but it isn't like he had really hit the ground or done any kind of in-depth scouting. In Virginia, it was even worse. Recall that when the settlers landed in 1607, they found the first clearly uninhabited plot of land of Abel and grabbed it. As it turns out, there was a pretty good reason why none of the local Indians had settled that plot of land. The water was brackish, it was infested with mosquitoes, and the tides basically managed to turn the water around the island into a cesspool of human waste. Roanoke of course had existed prior to Jamestown, but little was gleaned from the experience, as it wasn't really all that close to the settlement in Jamestown. It is worth mentioning that Roanoke is actually now in the modern-day state of North Carolina, not Virginia, and about 150 miles separate the island from the eventual settlement of Jamestown. In both these cases, it makes sense why there was little in the way of advanced scouting. Namely, such expeditions were expensive and ultimately impractical. A expedition launched from England for the sake of exploration was always going to be a difficult task. However, by the time Carolina entered into the fray, exploration had become far easier. There was substantial English infrastructure already in place throughout North America. No longer did you have to cross the Atlantic to begin scouting and exploring the landscape. You could just leave from Virginia. In terms of getting settlers acclimated to the environment in Carolina, this is a huge advantage over the earlier settlements. Those who are going to settle in Carolina are not walking in blind, they are going to have some clear expectations of what awaits them. The first real attempt to settle came in 1665. A group of colonists from Barbados agreed to settle Carolina. Settling in the Cape Fear region, the colony would ultimately prove to be short-lived. Cape Fear, which is way south of modern-day Wilmington, North Carolina, is a small peninsula located off the coast of the mainland. Little grew on the outcropping and the colony would fail after a short amount of time. Unlike the original settlement at Jamestown, if a colony wasn't working, the colonists had other options and really didn't need to just rough it out. Following the failure at Cape Fear, the proprietors continued to attempt to entice new settlers to come out. In 1667, the Treaty of Madrid was signed between England and Spain. Without getting into great detail about the treaty, here is what you need to know. The Treaty of Madrid ended what had been an ongoing commercial war between Spain and England. Now, when I say commercial war, please understand that there was some small-scale fighting. Mostly, it involved commercial ships taking shots at other commercial ships. While it never really explodes into a full-scale war between England and Spain, the Treaty of Madrid did a lot to diffuse the tensions that existed between the two nations. This, therefore, further removed the chance that the Spanish were going to do something crazy, like striking out at a settlement in Carolina. Breathing a sigh of relief, this treaty would tie off a serious concern for potential colonists. Finally, in 1670, 200 colonists from Barbados arrived at the mouth of the Ashley River and founded the settlement of Charlestown. Located in modern South Carolina, Charlestown would later become Charleston, and this marks the first town in Carolina to survive. The Spanish, despite the treaty, were none too thrilled with this development, having claimed the entire coastline as part of Florida. Florida. However, with the treaty in hand and a weakened Spanish empire, there was little interest on the part of the Spanish to get into a war with England over some land. They did make an attempt to send a flotilla up to attack, but then bad weather came along and everybody just decided to go home. Knowing that the best defense against possible Spanish intrusions was having large numbers, the proprietors set out on a plan to rapidly increase the population of the new colony. Widespread religious tolerance was offered. Among the groups that were going to be tolerated were Jews, which is something that was unusual in the other colonies. Furthermore, they had an extraordinarily generous headright system. For every member of a family brought over, there was going to be a grant of 150 acres. Even an imported slave would increase a claim by an additional 50 acres. Furthermore, just to get people in the door, the land tax was kept extremely low, just half a pence per acre per year and moreover was totally deferred until 1689. This plan worked well, and over the next 30 years, between 1670 and 1700, the population of Carolina expanded from the original 200 to around 6600. This massive population growth was key for a couple of reasons. First, it provided a degree of safety over the Spanish in Florida, whose population had long stagnated at around 1500. The growth of Carolina also meant that the Spanish were largely trapped in Florida, Sure, other opportunities existed for expansion beyond Florida, however, the Atlantic coast was now entirely in English hands. For the Spanish, it had the practical effect of pinning them down in Florida, not that they were really making overtures to expand beyond Florida anyway. Second, it should not be discounted that many of the new arrivals to the Carolina colony were slaves. With many of the original colonists traveling north from Barbados, this is not a surprising occurrence. During our episode on slavery, we discussed the fact that the slave trade remained far more active in the West Indies than it initially was in North America. With settlers coming from Barbados, however, many of them brought their slaves with them. Out of the 6,600 in the colony in 1700, right around 2,800 or 42% of the colony was made up of slaves. Those coming to settle Carolina were made up generally of middle-class farmers and artisans. Earlier in this episode, we had talked about how the islands of the West Indies had become increasingly controlled by the wealthy who owned large tracts of land. The farmers coming to Carolina were made up largely of everybody else, those farmers who wanted a share of the pie but just couldn't compete with the wealthier landowners. Carolina was how they planned to get in on the action. As in the other colonies, indentured servitude was a common thing, with about a third of the population falling into that category. This was a particularly great deal for the indentured servant, as at the end of their period of being indentured, they received not only basic farming tools, but they also received a 100-acre plot of their own. This would, of course, come at a steep price. They would have to endure harsh conditions for seven years, but after that, they suddenly had their own tract of land for their own use. For many, this was the best and often only path they had to becoming landowners themselves. For the more wealthy who did wish to bring over large numbers of slaves, the proprietors attempted to sweeten the deal. They agreed to begin counting slaves as members of the colonist's family for the purpose of the headright system. What this means practically is that for every slave brought over, the owner would receive an additional 150 acres of land. Likewise, the proprietors ensured slaveholders that they would not be interfering at all in the relationship between master and slave, and that the planter would hold full power and authority over his slaves. The real advantage that the Carolinas had is their sheer size. Unlike the cramped confines of the West Indies, the proprietors could advertise to both the wealthy landowners looking for even more, while at the same time they could attract that group of settlers who were basically excluded from the game down in the West Indies. Carolina was big enough that it could give everybody what they were looking for. Next time, we are going to spend some time going through the fundamental constitution of Carolina. Beyond looking at the structure of the document and the effect that it had on Carolina, we are going to give a little bit of extra time to look at its ultimate influence on the political documents coming out of the American Revolution, as well as the effect it had on its primary drafter, one of the giants of the Enlightenment, John Locke. So, I will see you all back here in two weeks' time, and we will dive in to the fundamental Constitution of Carolina. Until then, I hope you all have a great two weeks.